0: Amen. Thank you for the Dan. Have your Bibles turned again to Matthew eleven twenty nine, and I do want to remind you. I know I know there's more than one verse in the Bible, uh, but we've been kind of hovering around the latter part of uh, Matthew eleven for several months now, and we're looking in the last few weeks at the example of Christ. Somebody want to read verse twenty nine again in Matthew eleven. Thank you, Dan. Again, our, our focus of the last week or two, uh, when Jesus said in the middle of that verse, learn of me. Now, again, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, uh, notice uh, how the emphasis is. He didn't say learn of somebody else. Learn of who? Of me. And again, he is our prime example. He... Is perfect in His holiness. He's perfect in His virtue. He is perfect in His obedience. In John chapter 5, He said, "I, I always do the will of the Father. And you hardly ever hear me use that word always. But Jesus said He always does the will of the Father. So what does that mean? He always does it, okay? Nobody else can say that. We may want to, but no one else but Him always does the will of the Father? So, because of his example, because of his life that he lived, he's certainly to be preferred above all others, because he is the only one who's ever lived in this world to meet those standards. Now, we mentioned a week or so ago, and I think we referred to it again last week. Uh, the Bible says it's, there's, you know, it's good to follow uh, saintly men and women of God, but you only follow them how far? As long as they do what? Follow Christ, okay? In fact, what Paul said, he commanded the church of Corinth to follow him as he followed Christ. So we follow him to that point. So it doesn't matter uh, who that person is. It doesn't matter what they may have attained in their walk with God, even a lot of biblical characters. Uh, the bottom line is everyone except Christ had blemishes. He's the only one who didn't have any blemishes he had no perfect imperfection no sin and he even the Bible said he did no sin so not only is he the the perfect man he's also the pattern man okay the one we're to follow uh, because the bottom line is nobody else nobody else did what he did and lived the life that he did and what that means is, the pattern that Christ lived, the life that he lived, who is it suitable for everyone amen doesn't matter it's It's good for all of god's people uh, several weeks ago, two weeks ago we looked at uh, different verses that uh, talked about Jesus Christ uh, being our example, and we're not going to do that again tonight, but one example was john thirteen fifteen uh, Jesus reminded us that he uh, he had given us exa- an example that we should do what he has done for us. So he is our example. Now, it's interesting. Um, we, we certainly read a lot of precepts in, in God's Word, and there's nothing wrong with that. But Jesus gave us a concrete example. This is what it looks like. This is how you live a life that pleases God. And it's because he lived that life, we are challenged, in fact, mandated by Scripture to imitate uh, him in the way that we live our lives. Now, also remember the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, and I don't have the verse in our notes tonight, uh, but he says, it's the will of God that all of us be conformed to the image of his Son, Jesus Christ. So that should be the highest priority of our life. Well, we begin looking at what's involved in children of God imitating Christ. First of all, uh, without a doubt, they have to be born again. You cannot imitate Christ without being born again. The second thing is, if we're imitating Christ, we can't be our own boss. What's the problem with that a lot of times? Say what, Dan? Yeah. And who who do you want who do we want to be our boss? God. Ourself, right? But God has to be our boss. Second thing, the third thing is, because we're imitating Christ, no child of God has a right or are they qualified to rule over other people with a thumb of pressure, if you will, a lot of pressure on that. Also, the imitation of Christ, uh, without a doubt, tells us that Christianity is very strict, it is very exacting, and it does not tolerate immorality, and it does not tolerate the indulgence of our fleshly lust. Now, I I said that tonight, and I said it last week as well. The sad thing is, that's not what we see in America today. But it doesn't change the truth of the Bible. Christianity, imitating Christ, says that we are to live strict lives, that do not tolerate sin in our lives. The fifth thing, because Christ is the perfect example, without a doubt, it reminds us that even the best of men or women do have blemishes. Can you name one person other than Christ in Scripture that didn't have at least one blemish? You can't, because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The fact, Another fact, number six, about imitating Christ as our pattern it, it, it certainly implies his transcendent holiness. I mean, he is holy, holy, holy. Now, keep in mind, in this life, we are not going to do that to perfection, but we've got to strive for the mark of the high calling in Christ Jesus. His holiness is transcendent. Number seven, we looked at last week. We have to realize that if we we're imitating Christ, what that means is, there's evidence of that in your life. It means there's sanctification we see we've been set apart. Uh, there's obedience. Uh, we, we will show evidence. We've been justified. And we'll talk about justification in a moment. But also that we have been accepted by God. Now, again, I can't overemphasize this. We've touched on it a little bit on Sunday morning in our message about uh, being like uh, the new life we live in Christ. But we have to understand something that is vital. This idea of a new birth, being born again, It is, without a doubt, a supernatural event. Do you agree with that? Yes. That's, you know, through the years you'll see people come up and, you know, whatever they might want to do. But if you don't see a change in their life, if there's not sanctification, if there's not evidence they've been justified in their life, the truth is they probably haven't been, because you can't hide it in your life. It'll come out in your life. Now... I think it's important that every child of God have the assurance of salvation. What do I mean by that? What is the what is when I say the assurance of salvation? What is that? What do I mean by that? One more time, Cheryl. She's awful blunt, isn't she? No wonder she's in the back most of the time back there. But you're Now, okay, knowing we're going to heaven. So, Cheryl, are you telling we can know that? Thank you. The Bible says we can, all right? But we also need to know why we're going to heaven. Now, folks, the assurance of salvation. If I didn't have it, I'd get it. Whatever it takes to know that I am saved. Through the years I have met with people, their loved ones, on their deathbed, and they said, I sure hope they made it to heaven. So sad. Now, I realize that God is our judge. But if we are trusting solely on the finished work of Christ, and we have committed our life to Him, do we have to hope we make it to heaven? No. No. We are we know we know and we know we can know we have eternal life now hold on we have eternal life if listen very carefully the day I die I don't have any sin in my life that day. what do you mean Leviticus is back there shaking her head like this oh that's your okay <laughs> Yes, we all have sin. Listen, folks, we don't go to heaven because we're good enough. We go to heaven because he's good enough. Uh, Isn't that true? Isn't that true? But that's the assurance of uh, salvation. And, you know, the bottom line is we hear a whole lot of people talking about praying for somebody. Uh, they, They throw that word faith around all the time. And, uh, how many know that a lot of times what they're saying is not even scriptural? And, and so are biblical either way, but you cannot have biblical assurance without sincere and strict obedience to God's word. Now, I didn't say you had to obey God to be saved, but once we're saved, the only way to have that assurance is through strict obedience and service to God. That's how we have that assurance. I remember before I was saved, all the things, I thought, man, if I get saved, I'll have to do that and do this and go there. Now, I had no idea what I was talking about, of course. And Pam that's still true today. I don't know about that. But the fact of the matter is this. When you get saved, there are things you didn't used to want to do, you want to do now. You want to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah 32, look at verse 17. Okay, God's speaking here. And he says, this work of righteousness has a result. It results in peace. And then he goes on to say that the effect of righteousness is quietness and assurance forever. So again, he's talking about righteous living here. It brings about peace in our lives. But we need to remember something, folks. It cannot be our own righteousness that brings that peace. Because what does a Bible, how does does a Bible I don't have this verse tonight in our notes either. How does the Bible describe our righteousness? What does the Bible compare it to? Say it again, Cheryl. Filthy racks. Filthy racks. So it can't be my righteousness. It can't be your righteousness. So we don't have this peace for our own holiness, our own righteousness. But we find that peace on the highway of holiness. We find it in Jesus Christ. First Peter uh, chapter two verse twenty one. Thank you, Alan. Now, now notice we know that Christ suffered, for we know that, okay? But Peter gives us a specific reason why Jesus suffered for us. Now, we know for our sins, but what else was it for? Okay, an example. He did it for an example that we would follow him. He suffered for us, as an example, a concrete evidence, a, uh, what, do I, what should I say here, uh, An illustration, a a living illustration, on how we ought to conduct our lives, even in a broken world. So, so far, we've looked at Christ as our example. His perfect life is suitable for everyone. His holiness and obedience is good for all people to imitate. But understand, that's the reason, one of the reasons, God sent Christ into the world that he might leave us an example to follow, and, of course, to die for our sins. Okay, let's get kind of deep here real quick with a tough question. Our Bible is divided into two major sections. What are they? Old oh, the New Testament. Okay, we did good there. Yeah, there you go. And uh, the Old Testament is basically about what? You want to summarize it? Law. The law. The law of God. Thou shalt not. And if you do, here's the consequence, right? So that's the Old Testament. But the New Testament, what God does through Christ, He translates the law into. What one writer called concrete terms, and he puts before us the requirements by a personal representation through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, did Jesus come to do away with the law? No. He came to do what? Fulfill it. He came to fulfill the law. And again, who is Jesus? He's who? He's God. And if He didn't come to do away with it, if He came to fulfill it, what can we conclude? He did. God does what He says that to do. So He came to give us a personal representation, but He also came to humble our hearts. And through Christ, He revealed exactly how far short we come when it comes to measuring up to God's standards. One example that I think of, which was, I think would fit here, is the Apostle Paul. We knew him, first off, by Saul, his Hebrew name. That's all that is. And uh, before he was saved, what kind of man was Saul. Cheryl, say what? Okay, religious, okay. Who said that? Yeah. Very intelligent. Um, I would throw in a little bit arrogant. Why? Why do you think he might have been? He the law Yeah, he thought the law saved him. And well when it came to the law, man, he he watched it. He 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 crossed every T, he dotted every I. He didn't miss a part of it. He was zealous. But when Christ came, what did Paul realize? I'm I'm so far short of this. All those years, I thought I had reached it, but I haven't. Even now, when he wrote toward the end of his life as a Christian, he confessed he still hadn't apprehended what God had apprehended him for. He understood through Christ that Paul saw even he didn't measure up to God's standard of righteousness. But a second reason that God sent his Son, now this is all besides for our sins, is that the example of Christ, that we should follow him, his example, that we would honor him in our lives. And my friend, that's part of what sets us apart from the unsaved. We want to honor Christ by imitating him, that's different than the world lives. And so, we're, you know, God wants us to show the lost world. We don't just say it, we what? We live it. We, we don't just have an empty profession here. We're going to give concrete evidence that Jesus is who we say he is. And he's done for us what we say he's done for us. I ask you almost every week to continue to pray for my dad. Please don't give up. And you know, this is so hard when you're trying to deal with the unsaved. Because, you know, he wants to debate, well, you, you talk about the Bible. I mean, what about the other books out there? And I understand that argument. But what the unsaved don't realize is that once you're born again, we now have a special relation with God. He lives in us. And it's not just a book to us. Christ makes this book come alive, does he not? And how do you explain it to the unsaved? You can't. Because I didn't understand it until Christ saved me. But again, it's because what God has done for me that my life should show evidences that what I say about him is true. And all that being said, we have to conclude then that imitating Jesus is not an option. It's what? It's essential. We must imitate Christ. Okay, I might make some, well, I don't think i make any enemies, but I think I might shock you a little bit here tonight, what I'm about to say. But you'll get over it, and you'll come around to my way of seeing it. Uh, Jason's almost there on eschatology. Give me another couple of weeks, he'll be there. But anyway, what, what, to what degree? What, what are the, uh, you know, those of us who really want God to give us the, the, uh, the grace, if you will, to, uh, to imitate him? What are some of the particular respects we're to regard Jesus as our example? Let me give you a principle here. Me, I should have put it in your notes, but I didn't. Everything recorded in the Bible about Jesus is for our instruction. Would you agree? But not everything recorded about Jesus in the Scripture, not all of it is for our imitation. Let that kind of sit on the front burner and let it kind of simmer for a minute. Everything about Jesus in the Bible is for our instruction. But not everything the Bible says about Jesus is for our imitation. Any thought about that? Anybody think I'm a heretic? Any, any comment about that? Okay. In some respects, you're not. You can't. It's all for instruction, but not all for our imitation. Do you move your hand, Cheryl? Not allowed to do it out here. You can do it back there, but you can't do it out. No, i apologize, Cheryl. First of all, <laughs> how many know biblically? There's only one miracle worker. Who's that? God, Jesus Christ. We cannot work miracles. We don't have the power. Only Christ can do that. We can't imitate that part of his life. Because, would you agree? That's one of the things that sets him apart from us. He's God. John 5, look at verse 17, then skip down to verse 21. Thank you, Dan. That word quicken in the King James is an old English word. It means to give life. And Jesus is telling the crowd that gathered that day, up until now, my Father has been working. But not just him, I also work. And then in verse 21, he says, the Father raises up the dead. Now make no mistake about this. God is primarily talking about the dead spiritually. Can God do physically? Sure, He can. But who can give spiritual life? Only God. We can't imitate that. And of course, just as the Father gives life to the dead, Jesus, as even the Son, gives life to the dead. In Matthew chapter 9, there was a, a fellow who was sick of the palsy, and uh, his friends brought him to Jesus. And you, you got to love the way Jesus worked. Isn't that true? I mean, first of all, and we're going to read it in a moment here. He said something that day that if the Pharisees had socks on, it shocked their socks off. This guy came for physical healing. And Jesus said to him, your sins be forgiven. Right? Thank you, Dan. But you know what's interesting? Maybe he didn't realize he would offend that crowd that day when he said that. He knew he would. Look at we will in verse 6, Matthew 9. Matthew nine, six. Arise. First he said, Your sins are forgiven. Now get up, take your bed, and go to your house. How many know? That young man got more than he thought that day. Isn't that true? He was there for physical healing, but God gave him what? Spiritual healing. Give him both. He gave him both. Now remember, we can't imitate that. And I know you see people like Benny Hinn and Creffold Dollar. They can't imitate They're lying to you. Thank you. <laughs> I saw what you did back there, Marvin. But they can't. Only God has the power to do that. Only God has the power to forgive sins. Yeah, but that's another subject too. They say a lot of things is not true. They get the crowd worked up and it's not biblical. And, uh well, people fall for it more than one way. But it's interesting... Even the apostles never did those things in their own name or by their own power. Isn't that true? Peter and John go to the temple to worship, and there's a lame man sitting there, begging. Guess what what he's wanting? He wants some jingle. Throw some money in the pan. Peter says, we don't have any silver. We don't have any gold. Now that man, you know what he's thinking? Go somewhere else and <laughs> you're in the wrong line. They said, what we have, such as we have, we give it to you. The man was healed and the crowd went crazy. And Peter just John said, now wait one minute. If you think we did it by our own power, you're kidding yourself. It's through the Jesus Christ, the one you crucified. It's by his power, his name, this man whom you see today walks before you. Even the apostles didn't claim the ability to do that in their own name. And we can't either. Now, does that mean we can't pray for people? Absolutely not. We can pray. But if there's a miracle, who does it? God does it. God does it. So we can't do that. We know the Bible says there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And the works he performed were by his own merit. And he made expiation for our sins. And he brought in everlasting righteousness for us. But he also obtained our justification and our reconciliation. Can anybody else imitate that? No. Now I came across a word I want to camp on for a little while tonight. We've got a little bit of time left yet, what well, we do. And that's the word expiation. We've been preaching on Sunday morning about this new life in Christ and that supernatural event in our lives. And it's so hard to, to delve into everything that happened the moment you got saved. Everything Jesus has done for us. And Jesus made expiation for our sins. And you won't find that word in the scripture, but it's one of the better words, the best words, to describe an aspect of the sacrifice Jesus made on Calvary. The word expiation is just a theological term, and it means to cover sin or to cleanse sin. How many know the day you got saved, not only did Jesus cover your sin, he cleansed your sin? That's expiation. And so when the when theologians speak about expiation, it's the idea that the negative, degrading effects of our sin, it's all removed by the grace of God. Now don't miss that, it's by the grace of God. Not our works, not our own merits, only by the grace of God. Another word for expiation we do find in the Bible is the atonement. And this is one of the results of the atoning death of Jesus Christ for us. Now, I hope you can get a hold of this, because this is a tremendous truth. It's through expiation, through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross for us, the sin of all those who would ever believe in Christ was canceled. Amen. Now, we know that Jesus died just over 2,000 years ago. Other than Rick, I don't think anybody's holder have been back there then. But my question would be this. When we got saved, whoever it is, did Jesus have to go die again? No. Because his expiation, his work on the cross for us, took care of all the sin of anyone who would ever believe in Christ. And I gotta tell you, what a God! What a great God we serve, and he did it for us. And what's interesting, that cancellation is eternal in its consequence. Even though it's still here in a temporary sense. We still deal with sin. Now remember what I talked about earlier. Those who are truly imitating Christ, there will be evidences in our daily life that we have been sanctified. We've been set apart for the work of God. There will be evidence we've been justified. We'll see it in our lives. And if that's true, how long are our sins canceled for? Forever. Eternal Consequences. So the moment we were saved, we were delivered from the penalty and the power of sin. But we still deal with the presence of sin. Somebody said it a while ago, I don't care who you are. Whenever we take our last breath, there'll be sin in our lives. And if it wasn't for the expiation of Christ, his work on the cross, we'd be in trouble. But his blood covers all of our sins. Another result of expiation, what Christ did on on Calvary, is the word justification. Justification. I think it was Sunday, Rick. Maybe Sunday you sing that song, When Mercy Can Walk In. When we're in that courtroom, are we innocent or guilty? Guilty. Who is? Every one of us. So justification doesn't mean we're not guilty. Justification means we are being delivered from the penalty of sin. Romans chapter 5 verse 1 therefore being justified by faith. And justification is a one-time act where the believing sinner is justified and made holy and righteous in the eyes of God. My question is, how in the world can that be? What's the only answer? Say it again. Through Christ, because God said it was so. So when God looks at our lives, he didn't see our sin anymore. He sees the blood of Christ applied. We have now been given his righteousness. (laughs) And so we are now righteous in the eyes of God. Because the day you got saved, he exchanged our sinful nature for the righteousness of Christ on the Calvary. There was a transfer made, one that I could not make. And God took the righteousness, of Christ, the righteousness of Christ and transferred it into my life, to your life, the moment you got saved. I'm glad he did. Now think about that. Question back there? It's just as if, yes. Just as if we, that's good, that's good, isn't it? Yeah. And that's exactly what it means. Didn't mean you never sinned, right? But it's just as if you didn't. Now, folks, I want to say, that's a great work God does for us. Because we were all guilty. Thank you, Ronald. That's a, a great definition. I. Uh, I don't know about you, but through my lifetime, I made some bad deals. Uh, about every time I trade something, I get to short end of the stick. You know, it's usually my fault. But the day I got saved, Jesus did something for me I could never do. The best thing that ever happened in my life, and yours as well, if you're saved. 2 Corinthians 5, look at verse 21. Okay, sure. I know you just read it there, but I don't want to catch you off guard because I've had time to look at it. Uh, it says, He hath made him. Who's the he here, you think? Okay, no, back up. Okay, we got a he and a him. Okay, the he would be God, him would be Jesus Christ. Okay, and uh, God made Christ to be sin for us. And in case we didn't realize it, Paul said Christ didn't, didn't know any sin. But the reason was what? the life point of that verse. That we might be made what? Righteous of God. Who else would do that for us but God? He made his only son to become sin, to be sin. That we might be made the righteous of God in him. So we've got expiation or atonement. Christ will encounter We talked a little bit about justification, and then we mentioned the word sanctification. And uh, sanctification is not a work of second grace. It's a continual work in the life of believers. It's the ongoing process from the moment you're saved that we are delivered from the power of sin in our lives, but at the same time, given power, the ability to... Uh, to, by our new nature, turn away from sin. We can't do it on our own. Now, hear me well, we could not rid our sins, expiation, we couldn't do that. We couldn't justify ourselves, and you can't sanctify yourself. It's an ongoing process. We are being sanctified. And every day we live, we ought to be more and more like Jesus Christ. Now remember, we've been preaching about our new life in Christ on Sunday mornings. We cannot live that new life. We'll talk more about it coming up Sunday. How we need to look to Jesus. But this is what God is doing in our lives. Now, do you think God knew we couldn't live it by ourselves? Sure he did. So That's why he provided everything we need to live a life pleasing to him he knows our frame he provided everything we can another word is glorification and that's when we are actually removed from the presence of sin and this will only happen when we leave this world and make heaven our home but my friend that day is coming And these are all processes, justification, sanctification, and glorification. They could never happen without the expiation or the cancellation of our sin. So Jesus took care of that first. He canceled our sin. Not just part of it, but the whole thing. But, my friend, there are so many other benefits because of what Jesus did on Calvary. And we talked about expiation, and there's another one that's uh, true and just as biblical. It's propitiation. And what that means is to appease the wrath of God. And the great news is, The atoning death of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, satisfied the wrath of the Father against rebellious, sinful humanity. Make sure we understand, Christian. God poured the wrath that I deserved out on His Son. He poured the wrath out that every person deserves on his Son. That is propitiation. John 3, look at verse 36. Thank you, Dan. Cheryl, you mentioned a moment ago you can know you're saved. That's the verse you were thinking about, I'm Sure. Bible, so you can know it. if you have, if you believe on the son, you've got everlasting life. If you don't, guess what? You don't have it. Plain and simple. Romans 5, 9. Romans 5, verse 9. How many are glad for that? I mean, think about it for a moment, folks. How awful do you think the wrath of God is? We can't imagine. But because of the blood of Christ, we've been delivered from that wrath. Say it again, brother. Absolutely. Amen. God will discipline us for sure now. And sometimes that hurts. It can be paid, yes. But it's not stored up wrath. And by the way, how many know that whatever God allows to come into our life, even the pruning, it's never meant to drive us away, it's meant to draw us to Him. That's the love of God. So it's expiation, justification, sanctification, glorification, propitiation. And so much more. And I suggest you tonight, we have a whole lot of things to praise God for. He did all of this for us. We have a whole lot of things we can run to God in faith for and trust Him. And by the way, if He cared enough to do all of this for us, what will God withhold from us that's good? Not one thing. Not one thing. Thank you, Jesus. He interceded for us. Through his intervention, he secured our preservation. Did we ever earn that on our own? No. Because the Bible says, at our best... We are all unprofitable servants. At our best. And even as man, while he was here on this earth, Jesus did some things that weren't necessarily meant for our imitation. Things that we could not do. A couple of the gospels record the time... After baptism, he was led to the wilderness. He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Which verse of the Bible tells us to imitate that? None. wonder why. Ah, we can't. Now, is there anything wrong with fasting? No, not at all. But he never intended for us to do that. There was a time he even walked on the water. While he was a man, right? Peter tried it, and I give him credit. I wouldn't have done that, but he did. But why doesn't Christ ask us to imitate that? We can't. And here's one I never, I never thought of till I saw it in my study guide this week. We know at least on one occasion... Jesus went away by himself, and he spent an entire night in prayer. He prayed all night long. Show me a verse in the Bible where you're told to imitate that one. Or not. And I confess, through the years, I've had people invite me to take part in it, and I've done it. We were there all night, but we was not all awake all night. And when we were, we were numb. And we weren't praying. We were enduring. Praying for daylight to come. <laughs> we're not told to imitate that. And I realized the uh, the night of the arrest of Christ had been a busy day. And he asked the disciples, three of them, the, the closest three, stay here and pray. What What did they do? They fell asleep. And you know what Jesus said? He said, Your spirit's willing, but I know your flesh is weak. Is that true about us? Sure it is. So, okay, uh, We know that Jesus didn't come to do away with the law, if I can say it. So on the eighth day after his birth, they took him to the temple for what reason? To be circumcised. Huh? All the law. But we're not commanded to do that. We know that also while he was here, he kept the Passover. We're not commanded to do that either. So that being said, so where, is it, you know, what part of his life while he was here on this earth, what part of his life should we imitate? Well, number one, any of the duties that relate to men at all times. Doesn't mean they're extraordinary or necessarily temporary. But Jesus says we're to love God with all of our hearts and our neighbors as ourselves. and So we're to imitate that in the way we live. We're also to imitate him in areas that go with being a good citizen. For example, in Luke chapter 2, at verse 51, somebody read that for me, please. Uh, you know the story here, they brought, left Jesus in Jerusalem after the Passover there, and wow, they go back to get him. And he said, well, don't you people realize? i have got to be about the Father's business. But yet at the end of the day, he obeyed him. He went home. He was obedient to his parents. Matthew 17, look at verse 27. Matthew 17, verse 27. Thank you, Cheryl. This is all about paying taxes. Peter asked that question, and Jesus said, wait a minute, Peter, Let let me give you an illustration. Does a king collect taxes from another kingdom or from his own kingdom? Peter said, from his own kingdom, we know that. And Jesus said, Peter, well, you realize now, well, mine's a different kingdom. So I really don't have any legal demand to pay those taxes. But in order to be a good citizen, Peter, go down there, grab that fish. And you'll find enough money for what? To pay mine and pay yours, okay? So we need to be good citizens. Jesus was that. We also got to be faithful in sharing the gospel. Luke 8.1. Okay, sharing the gospel of Christ, being faithful to do that. We're to do that in this world. Hebrews 3.2. <clears throat> Hebrews 3.2, speaking of Christ here. Who was faithful to him that appointed him. As also Moses was faithful in all his house. We're to be faithful to the one who appointed us. That's God. He's called us. But the third thing we're to imitate him is when we do what is right and what is needful. Matthew twelve twelve. Would you read that last sentence again? <laughs> Thank you, Dan. One of the biggest problems the Pharisees had is when Jesus did a good deed on the Sabbath day. Did Jesus know the law? Sure he did. In fact, he was Lord of the Sabbath. And that particular day he healed a man. And the Pharisees were up up in arms about that. And Jesus said, which one of you would go out and find one of your sheep or lambs in the ditch on the Sabbath... Which one of you would not bend over, grab hold of him, and pull him by that ditch? What's the answer? You'd do it. Why? It's the right thing to do. Now, Jesus could have said, you know what, you're right, it's a, it's a Sabbath. But this guy needed healed. And it was the right thing to do. And so, the reason I had you read that last sentence again, Dan, because Jesus, it is lawful. It's lawful to do good on the Sabbath day. So do what is right and do what is needed. Now, our conformity to Christ relates to the experiences of the state of life Jesus passed through. He first entered our world in a state of humility. Isn't that true? Born in a, in a manger. He came that way before he could be rewarded by God in exaltation. And so God says, the Bible teaches that we are members of his body. He's the head of the church. And we're to imitate him. And so if we're going to be followers of Christ... We have to experience at least a measure, to some degree, of the adversity that he faced, the opposition, the persecution, the hatred, the affliction. And we do that because we know, thank God, there's a better life coming. Amen. Jesus, if you suffer with him, we will also one day reign with him. Hey, when Pam is right he said you'll never get through all these verses. Hebrews two ten. Somebody read that please. For it was fitting for him, for whom all are all things, and by whom all things, and bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect and suffer. Amen. God calls calls every one of us to follow the captain of our salvation. And the Bible says in Hebrews, he was made complete, perfect through sufferings. If he was made complete through sufferings, what about us? The same is true in our life. Let's stop there for tonight. That's as far as I wanted to get, anyway. Let's take a few minutes and go to the Lord in prayer.